This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. A choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into a, an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this incredibly cool episode, guys, we have Jeff Drum returning. Now, uh, he is the author and host of Landa Chem. It's going to be the author of the book series, Landa Chem, and the host of the YouTube channel, Landa Chem. Uh, and it's all linked below, so check that out. He is out there exploring the functions of the pyramids. Now, on this episode, guys, we talk about a theory recap from the first time he was on the show. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, his 2022 research expedition, which he just recently returned from, and his electromagnetic field experiment, which is totally cool and will blow your mind. Uh, chemical analysis of the Red Pyramid staining as well covered in this, guys. So definitely check the uh, link descriptions down there and find all the ways to find Jeff. Uh, incredibly cool dude. His books are amazing. He has new merch out, which is just badass. It's a super cool shirt. Mine's on the way. Uh, and so definitely check those out. While you guys are down in the show notes, check out all the resource links that we provide as well as click on the link expandingrealitypodcast.com. That's where links to all the socials can be found. That's where everything links to. So it's kind of a central hub for everything. Also, while you're there, sign up to become an expansive insider. This is the best way to support the show. Tons of bonus stuff over there. It's absolutely amazing. Also, if you just want to support the mission here, uh, there is a link in the show notes. It's a value for value system. So if you find value in this, we always appreciate your participation in that exercise. So now that we've gotten that going, guys, let's get to this incredibly cool conversation with Jeff Drum. Welcoming Jeff Drum back to the show. Jeff, uh, you're a badass, man. It's good to see you again. And I'm super pumped about the catch up. We're going to catch up on your theory recap. We've also got some uh, research updates that you're going to give us. You just went back to Egypt here and you just came back with some more phenomenal information here, your chemical analysis on the Red Pyramid, also your oh, yeah. uh, EM field research that you've been doing, your experiments out there, and you've just been crushing it. Also, we're going to touch on some Freemasonry here. I got some questions submitted for you and uh, this is going to be awesome as always. So Jeff, dude, it's so good to see you, brother. How you been? Looking forward to it, man. I appreciate you having me back on. I forget that we've known each other for almost two years now. That's and like the, the first time that I came on the show was probably right after I had initially published my book. So that was like sometime in 2020, maybe early 2021. Yeah. So we've had a lot of stuff happen since then. Uh, the research is certainly escalating and we're getting more and more stuff that's assisting to corroborate my theories like these chemical analysis and this, that and the other. So I'm going to share some of that today. I know 
I guess my first time on the show, I didn't talk about the electromagnetic field experiment. I didn't talk about the chemical analysis because we hadn't found that yet. And like you said, I just got back from my fourth research trip to Egypt and we had special permission to go in all but whole bunch of sites, Abu Sir, Abu Ghraib, inside the Osiris shaft system. And I just found out of another chemical analysis that was taken from a metallic coating layer that covers the containers down in the Osiris shaft system. Damn. So we can talk a little bit about that here in the presentation. But yeah, no, it's just um, figured I'd come back on and bring you up to speed on all the new stuff. Since I think last time, all we talked about was just really an introduction to the theory at that point. Yeah, we went balls deep and we got into a little bit of that you knew of. I asked you if you'd done any chemical analysis and we were, I think it wasn't at the point to where it was ready to be revealed yet. And so this is absolutely perfect, dude. It's always cool to see you. So I'm grateful. Absolutely grateful. I, I appreciate that. And thank you so much for having me back on. So yeah, I was aware that these chemical analyses were being taken. And I just wanted to express that it is not me personally taking any of these samples because it is highly illegal to do that, especially in the manner in which these individuals are taking these samples. And it turns out, so I found three different research discoveries that entail chemical analysis. And all of these are coming from research teams from Russia. So I don't know how these underground teams are getting the permissions to do this, whether it's taken illegally without permission, how are they getting these samples back and forth through customs, all this sort of stuff. Um, I'll leave that up to them. All I can say is that I'm happy that somebody is actually doing this because I don't have to personally do it. I can just take the research and then present it to everybody uh, on my channel. Yeah, it's perfect. Maybe they have an agreement to where they'll nuke them last. You know what I mean? Right, yeah, yeah, something like that, yeah. yeah. Or first, depending on how you'd want to go out, yeah. Yeah, so that being said, again, um, for interest. There we go. Am I back now? You're back. Sorry, it's my, all good. My phone all goes good. Um, so yeah, my name is Jeff. I'm the author of a book called The Land of Chem, an initiation into ancient chemistry through the degrees of the Egyptian pyramids. And my theory is that the Egyptian pyramids were designed to produce chemicals on an industrial scale. So quick introduction to anybody that hasn't seen my previous appearance here on the channel. And if you want, I can go ahead and fire up this presentation and we'll walk through kind of a refresh of the theory, some of the new stuff that I have going on, et cetera, et cetera. Bro, let's roll it. I'm super excited about this. Yeah, so I just got back, man. It's hard to believe that this is my fourth research expedition to Egypt. And like when I was a kid and even in my early 20s, I never thought that I would have the opportunity to be doing this. So it's, a, it's an unbelievable blessing. And I'm so grateful and fortunate to just be fortunate enough to be able to go to Egypt once, let alone four times. So this is just kind of a quick recap of what we did during this year's research expedition. So we basically did a complete rerun of my initial research expedition from 2017. So I could go back and get like documentary style footage, long format videos of all the sites and discussing my research on site because in previous trips, it's so hard to get photo documentation and video documentation and you're trying to live in the moment and actually experience the sites and actually learn something while you're there and it's almost impossible to simultaneously do all those three things because if you're living through the lens you're not living through the actual experience itself yeah and then you can't necessarily absorb all the stuff while you're there so it's either do one or the other so during this trip i was just trying to get video documentation but our first day was in saqqara 
And this is an awesome map of the entire area at Saqqara. And people often underestimate how many pyramids and how many structures there truly are in Egypt. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of these things all over the Western bank of the Nile. And you can see how large of a complex this is and how um, detailed it is in terms of the complexity of the entire site. So over here is the pyramid of Winis, which we got a chance to go inside of this one. This is the one that has the calcite crystal inside of the chamber. And the back portion of the wall inside of this chamber is completely made of calcite crystal. So it's literally a crystal chamber inside of this pyramid. It's incredible. So that's awesome. The pyramid of Winis is incredible. And then we also got a chance to go inside of the step pyramid of Saqqara, which is here in the center. And my theory proposes that the step pyramid of Saqqara was designed to collect methane gas. And there's a number of different ways that that was occurring. Over here is the Serapium, this underground system that has all of those large containers that everyone always talks about. Now, don't people pronounce it Seraphium? Is there a correct way or is that the correct yeah, so way? It's, like, it's just like the Angli Anglicanized pronunciation. Like, you know, Americans say Serapium. And when they say it over in Egypt, it's Serapium. So I've just kind of, I've just picked up on the way that they say it over in Egypt. But I used to say Serapium and I don't think there's any you know, right or wrong way to actually pronounce that word. I, I like the native tongue, though. That That's something, you know, for clarity. Uh, I like I like the clarity. So thank you. Yeah, no, I, the, the first couple of times I was always saying Serapium, Serapium. But then I guess just over this last trip, it kind of like switched over to where I was saying Serapium. But I, I think either way is fine. But actually, I just put out, it's going to premiere. Well, I don't know when this is going to come out, but on Monday of this week. So I found yet another chemical analysis of ancient Egyptian saw blades. Ooh. And they actually found traces of microscopic metal particles on the surfaces of some of the cut stones. And they found out exactly what the type of metal was that they were using to cut these stones and also the abrasive. So in this chemical analysis, I'll go ahead and share it with you. Um, and this hasn't even come out on my channel yet. I haven't even released this stuff. So arsenical copper, Right. So the story in ancient Egypt is that all these stones were cut with copper. Well, we discovered several stones, both at the Giza Plateau and at other sites that have deposits of green copper oxide inside of the saw cut. So there's clear evidence on site that the saw did contain copper. But this chemical analysis proves that it was arsenical copper. So it was not pure copper. It was an alloy of copper and arsenic that created something called arsenical bronze, which was much, much harder and more durable than pure copper itself. And this is how alloy technology works, is that by including a small amount of a different metal in the chemical composition, you can completely change the properties of the metal itself. So they were using a complex copper arsenic alloy for the metal saw blade. And they were also using titanium and iron microparticles. And these titanium and iron microparticles are coming from a mineral called ilmenite, which is essentially titanium ore. And they have ilmenite mines all over Egypt. And titanium ore was an incredibly prominent earth mineral all over Egypt. So they were using an abrasive, right? So when you're cutting stones, even in the modern day, you have your blade and then you also have an abrasive slurry. And that abrasive slurry is actually what does the stone cutting. 
So in this chemical analysis, they found microscopic particles of both arsenical bronze or arsenical copper and these iron and titanium microparticles, which were actually the abrasive that was used in the stone cutting process. I just want to stop you here. This is an outstanding discovery because this is one of the biggest issues or, that people come across whenever they're discussing the construction of the pyramids is copper chisels, right? And they say Correct. it's way too soft of a material to be able to do the cutting that it did. But the way that right. you explain it, it makes so much more sense. And that, that's also why you would find traces of copper in there because it was, you know, the makeup of an alloy. That's brilliant. Right. And I was I was honestly quite surprised to see that on site because I was always the one that was an advocate of a more advanced yeah. alloy or something of that nature, because I'm certainly not opposed to them having that sort of capability. Yeah. Um, the main narrative that goes around is the whole lost ancient high technology thing, that it requires advanced machines of some sort to cut these stones. Aliens. Well, it really doesn't if you have the right materials and the right knowledge. And that's what I've proposed in my theory and my research is that this is a civilization that was predicated upon knowledge. It wasn't necessarily advanced so this, my, my cell phone, right? This is advanced high technology. The Egyptian pyramids are not advanced high technology. They are advanced knowledge. They're advanced understanding of physics and chemistry and of the function of the natural world in the universe, which enables them to accomplish miraculous feats. And that's the same thing with the stone cutting techniques too, is if you have a, a good hard metal alloy blade and the right abrasives, you can cut right through basically anything. And it's really cool, man. So they did analytic scanning electron microscopy, right? A very, very advanced modern high technology. And in this video, I have images of these microscopic metal particles that they found on these stones. And to me, it is unbelievably fascinating to see these like minute, you can't even see it without a microscope. But if you take a microscope to the stone, you can literally see the secrets of ancient masonry, right, are literally left on the stone. So it's really, really cool video I have coming up on my channel. It shows all of the pictures of those little particles. And again, it's proving that there was a more to the story than there's originally told, but it's probably not as fictitious as some of the conventional narrative would lead you to believe. It's just so fascinating that people like uh, Chris Drum have gone over there um, and looked at this stuff with these, you know, uh, very precision engineering tools, but nobody thought to slap a microscope on the cuts. And now I'm sure that this has been done, you know, people yeah. know, and even in the archeological network, there has to be, and even in this episode, I have some research that came out from the Met Museum where they found those copper tubular drill holes mm -hmm. and they took a sample of some of the abrasive material that was left in that tubular drill. And they found arsenical copper, arsenical bronze. They found a mineral called corundum, which is essentially crushed up rubies. And ruby is aluminum oxide. So again, they're finding incredibly hard metallic based minerals that actually, so people always use this whole Mohs scale thing. Oh, if it's not XYZ on the Mohs scale, it can't cut through that. Right. Well, it's not the blade itself that actually does the cutting. It's the abrasive. So if you're using tiny powdered abrasive that contains aluminum and titanium and iron, that's what actually cuts through the stone. So corundum, ilmenite, they've all discovered using these scanning electron microscopy that it was the abrasive that actually does the work. And it turns out it was because of their understanding of geology.
which I'm going to get to here in just a moment when we talk about the electromagnetic field experiment, they had an extensive knowledge of not only the different types of geology, but also the properties of these different stones, because the properties of the stones are also incorporated into the function of the structures. So they understood exactly where to find these minerals, what properties the minerals have, and how they could integrate those properties into the functions that they were performing. So the conventional narrative, again, is like, it's copper tools, and it's very, very primitive. And it's sort of, you know, there's not much to see here. But there is so much more of a sophisticated story that it's out there in the accepted archaeological and historical narrative, but you really have to dig for it. Like I was actively researching abrasive compounds used in ancient Egypt to be able to find that stuff about corundum. So unfortunately, it's just not well promoted in the ancient uh, archaeological realm that they were using alloys, which I don't see why that's such a big deal that it just can't be part of the accepted narrative. They say just pure copper, but it was not just pure copper. Well, and it answers so many questions that the pure copper folks have, you know, and so it would seem like that this would be, yeah, this is the discovery and it would just kind of put all that to rest. But I, I love that you're the one that makes these kind of discoveries. It honestly makes sense. So, yeah. Well, I was very fortunate. Again, I just, I kind of stumble across stuff as I'm researching. And this was, I just found this after I got back like two weeks ago, I just happened to be scrolling through YouTube and, you know, the algorithm will send us blessings every once in a while. And the algorithm just sent this video about ancient metal microparticles found on the surfaces of stone. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's right up my alley. Um, and so also like the secrets of ancient metallurgy are directly related to the secrets of ancient chemistry because it's a simultaneous discipline. You can't have one without the other. And it's understanding the properties of certain metals. Again, that's advanced knowledge that takes a significant time period to accumulate, which again, I think is one of the reasons that the conventional archeological narrative is so simple because they don't want to imply that the Egyptian civilization actually goes back much further than it did. Yeah. That which, would take according a long to time. everyone in Egypt, it absolutely does. Yeah. I mean, it would take a long time to develop her like five minutes with an Anunnaki god, something like that, you know? So we, we could still not rule out the fact that maybe the knowledge that they were given was given to them by an advanced civilization that knew a lot about these properties. That maybe they could fast track the evolution of a species real quick by just going, hey, you know, if you'd slap some crushed rubies on that thing, it'd go a lot quicker. So I will say this is how did they know where to find these stones? Yeah. How did they know the exact quarry location to obtain the specific type of stone that was going to yield the results that they were looking for? Well, it's a so great today, today we would use like um, LIDAR technology and like radar stuff to examine the geology underneath the surface of, of the earth, right? How did they know that? They I mean, were able to specifically locate this stuff. And you'll see in just a minute with the chemical analysis of the red pyramid staining, that's not even limestone. Everyone thinks that the stones in the red pyramid are limestone, conventional calcium carbonate. It's not even limestone. Hmm. It yeah, is an unbelievably rare type of strontium carbonate. Oh, shit. Okay. 
then that's that's oh, much different. And and because oh, the it, chemical analysis is going to blow your mind when we get to it here in just a minute. All of this blows my mind, dude. It's always so great to talk to you. <laughs> uh, you know, and one of the one of the other things you point out here, which is an excellent uh, point to be made here, is how far away these blocks came from and were transported into place. And that's a whole nother thing of how they move these things. And maybe that was some sound technology, which maybe is just more natural wisdom that we've just kind of lost or been suppressed over the years. But another thing that you know you think about with this is how far away people go to hewn specific elements and then bring them to a very specific spot. Another one would yep. be Stonehenge because those stones came from so damn far away, but they yep. had to be those stones from there and moved over to here. It's fascinating. So here's another thing. So when we, we got special permission from the Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities to go down inside of the Osiris shaft system, and it's 120 feet underneath the Giza Plateau. So it's in a shaft system below the pyramids on the surface. Wow. And according to multiple dating techniques, this shaft system and the containers inside of there predate the pyramids on the surface by about a thousand years. Wow. So even before the construction of the Egyptian pyramids, they were building sophisticated structures on the Giza plateau that had these containers. And there's a container down inside of the Osiris shaft system that's made of dacite. And dacite is an unbelievably rare type of stone that is not found in any sites anywhere in Egypt. And there is not a vein of dacite, like in terms of the actual stone deposit itself. There's not a vein of dacite anywhere in Egypt large enough to quarry a single block that you could carve a container out of. So where the hell did they get this mineral? Yeah. And how did they get it all the way to Egypt? And why did they go through all of the extra trouble? If it's just a box, right? If it's just a sarcophagus for the burial of a body, why the hell would you go through all that extra effort of locating that specific quarry? Again, the knowledge of how to find the quarry because they're looking for a specific type of mineral. So they have to know exactly where it is, exactly where to find it, how to quarry it out of there and how to get it back to the site. So it's an unbelievable amount of work just to find the damn stuff let alone quarry it out, cut it and bring it back and then bury it a thousand feet underground underneath the Giza plateau. And that dacite container is covered with a layer of exotic metal coating. So were there any bodies found in that dacite material? No. Okay. And on the third level of the Osiris shaft, so it's three levels and you're going down about 40. Well, the first drop is about 30 feet. The next drop is about 70 feet, and then you go down another 30 feet. Wow. So it's way underground, and you're climbing these rickety-ass metal ladders to get down in there. Sounds so cool. And on the, on the oh, wait till you see the footage, man. It's awesome. And so on the third bo bottom level, it's actually underwater. You go down there, and it is crystal clear blue water. It's like a lagoon underneath the Giza Plateau. And originally, it was configured like an island. It had four pillars surrounding the island. There's this crystal clear blue water, and there is a black granite sarcophagus down inside of this water. So they went back in like the 1970s, and they brought modern equipment down in there to lift the lid off of the sarcophagus in the lower level. Nothing inside of there. And no one's been down inside. You know, There's absolutely no way for people to have been able to go in there other than using modern equipment to open up this container. And when they opened it, of course, nothing was in there. And I would propose that there was never anything in there. Yeah. Nothing, nothing not physical. Human, yeah. Not a human, maybe not a human body. You know, maybe you bury aliens there and they're teleported out. 
I don't know. I think that they were more functional. Mm-hmm. I agree. In terms of having, well, I won't get into it too much because that's stuff that's coming up in the second book, but like the, the containers in the Serapium, for example, they went through a great level of work to remove any tiny cracks that were in those containers because there's these scoop marks that are scooped out of the container and the scoops are done with such precision and it's like completely smooth the way they scooped out these cracks. So why would they go, again, if this was just a sarcophagus for a burial, why would they go through all the extra trouble of removing the cracks? Well, it's because of vibration and frequency and sound. So let's say you have a tiny crack in something that could be vibrating. That crack is just going to continue to get worse and worse, and it's going to compromise the integrity of your entire container. So think of it like a speaker or an amplifier. And we'll get to that in just a minute with the electromagnetic field experiment. Well, it's a good point. Just kind of a fun fact here. Why, uh, you know, how we came up with distorted guitars was if somebody cut a speaker uh, and then that's how they got that distortion sound. And so that we can thank for all of our heavy metal and all of that stuff was from just yep. somebody damaging a speaker. Uh, yep. So that's very interesting. But it would not work if you had some high technology and it was dependent on the structural integrity of the of the casing. Yeah. And then another thing to keep in mind, all of these containers, the sarcophagus themselves and also the internal chambers of some of the pyramids are designed with harmonic and acoustic proportions. So there is an interaction between the Earth's electromagnetic field and the configuration and the material of these containers and chambers. All right, let's let's go all along so we can get to that. <laughs> so cool. Love that map, by the way. This is awesome, Jeff. Oh, no, that map is awesome. And I've never seen that replicated before. And that's actually on site. It's at the little guard shack. And I've never seen that detailed map before. And it's one of the best ones that I've seen that shows all the stuff at Saqqara, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, I love Saqqara because it has some of the most interesting integrations of geology. On the eastern side of the Pyramid of Winis, there's a red granite sliding valve mechanism that has like a dovetail housing carved in the red granite where the mechanism could slide up and down out of this dovetail housing. And nobody ever talks about that. God, that's cool. And it's on the side of the pyramid that's not supposed to be the original opening to the structure. So if the northern side was when they're bringing the body in and out of the structure, what is this sliding valve mechanism on the eastern side doing? Were there bodies found in there? Uh, So the Pyramid of Winis, I will say, the Pyramid of Winis is the one that has the pyramid text carved Mm. into the walls. Mm. However, the carvings of those pyramid texts are incredibly superficial. They are like barely scratched into the surface of the stone. And when you go back behind the container itself, there's no carvings behind the container. Like they didn't bother going all the way back around. It's like kind of partially done. So to me, there's also a big difference between the quality of the stonework in the calcite so the back third of the chamber are these massive cal- clear calcite walls. Like imagine a, a crystal chamber is exactly what it is. But the hieroglyphs carved on that calcite literally look like you took a pin and just scratched it into the surface. So it appears that all of those carvings and things came later. And I do think that they did find some burial remains inside of the Pyramid of Winis, but that's not necessarily the original purpose of the structure. 
And a lot of these things are regarded as intrusive burials. Mm -hmm. So they'll find intrusive burials in all of these sites, like all the ancient sites, they'll find stuff buried in there. So the Pyramid of Winis, I did, I believe they found some remains in there. And they did find some remains in the Pyramid of Saqqara, the Step Pyramid. However, it was not in the original burial chamber. It was not in the sarcophagus, but it was in these tunnels that had been excavated later. And it's like off to the side and everything was just kind of stuffed into these little tunnel areas, which to me is not indicative of the original pharaonic burial. It's just they came around later, found the tunnels or excavated some tunnels around there and repurposed it as a burial. Yep. Yep. Great point. Outstanding point. So this is just, this is one of my favorite pictures from this year's research expedition. Again, we went inside the Red Pyramid of Dashur and the Bent Pyramid of Dashur, which you can see here in the distance. And I'll get to what is inside of the Red Pyramid here in just a minute. So there's staining, chemical staining all over the walls inside of these chambers. And the conventional narrative is that it's from bat piss and that the smell of ammonia is all from bat piss. And that's all you hear. That's nothing to see here. It's all from the bats. Well, I almost lost it when I found this chemical analysis and I found out who did it and I got in touch with them. And it turns out we have some mutual connections in Egypt. So I was like, hey, I know this person, send me the chemical analysis. And it absolutely blew my mind. And I finally have proof that it has absolutely nothing to do with bats. So that was one of the greatest revelations that I've come to. Well, not that I've done anything. I just found the research and just happened to know the people that did it. Yeah, but, but nonetheless, I, I want to point yeah, out in here, though, that you had that before you got verified. Like, you knew that. We had talked about the bats and the Red Pyramid on the last uh, yeah. episode. And so you already had that. That just confirms something that you had already suspected, which is awesome, man. Like, you, you already knew this, and then you just got confirmation on it, which is crazy cool. So congrats. This is still your, your you. work here. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I knew like the first time I went inside the Red Pyramid and they're giving that explanation, I was like, oh, this is bullshit. Yep. You know, this is this is nonsense because yep. you go in there and you can see that the staining pattern is not indicative of anything that is organic or natural. You know, there's there's certain patterns of the staining that indicate fluid dynamics. And if it's bat piss, again, the bats aren't pissing up against the wall. That's not how it works, even in terms of the physics. And even if they were pissing on the wall, it would all fall on the ground. Right which is what you find in all the structures where there are bats. And I've been in plenty of pyramids and other structures in Egypt where there's tons of bats and there's none of this staining and there is no smell of ammonia. So I knew the first time I went back in there in 2017, that that was nonsense. And it wasn't until four years, five years later that I finally got the chemical analysis from the Asita project. And so the Asita project went to Egypt back in 2010 and they got access into some of these structures before they were ever open to the public, like the bent pyramid that was closed to the public until 2020, mm. but they went in there in 2010. And this is when they took those chemical analysis and stuff. And it just happens that I know some people that the a project worked with in Egypt. I got their contact information. I sent the lady a, an email. I was like, Hey, can I get that chemical analysis? She's like, Oh, you know, this guy, blah, blah, blah. So we ended up um, sharing that with me and she gave me permission to put it on my YouTube channel. So we'll get to that here in just a moment. Um, so I think yes. we talked about we, this during my first trip. We did, and I was curious if you had an update. Yeah, yeah. So this is from Abu Sir. Um, this is another site that is typically inaccessible to the public, and you have to get special permission for the Ministry of Antiquities to go out here. And during my first trip, this artifact here is a collection bowl. And this is one of the first artifacts that I discovered that completely changed my understanding of what these structures really are and what they were doing. Because if this was a burial site, 
what exactly were they collecting? And the conventional explanation is that this was a sewer system. Okay, well, if this was a sewer system, why would they go through all the extra effort of getting red quartzite? Mm -hmm. So again, this is red quartzite here, which is a very rare, unique type of stone, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. If this was just a, a pipe for some piss and shit coming out of here, you would not go through all the extra effort of quarrying the stone and dragging it hundreds and hundreds of miles to build it into your pyramid site. Nor would you have a collection bowl for urine and feces that's running through your, again, I thought this was a pharaonic burial. Why are people taking a piss and a shit at the burial of their basically a God? Yeah. It does not make any sense that this is a sewer system. Nope. So nonetheless, first time I saw this thing, I was like, oh, it's a collection bowl. Collection for what? Well, even my first thought was like, well, what if it's for embalming chemicals? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a pretty reasonable hypothesis based on the dynastic Egyptian pharaonic burial idea, but it's still for collection of chemicals. And this was literally the first artifact that completely changed my understanding that inevitably led me to developing the theory that the Egyptian pyramids were designed to produce chemicals. So after my 2017 trip, I knew that there had to be an inlet to this conduit. And I hypothesized that the inlet to the conduit was going to be at the base of the pyramid itself. So the pyramid is producing the chemicals, the chemicals flow through the conduit underneath the floor of the temple, and they are collected here in this bowl. So we're walking around Abu Sir, And of course, what do I stumble across? Oh shit. The inlet. And so this is a, the red quartzite inlet that runs all the way through this Eastern temple. There's black basalt floor. So this conduit runs all the way through the temple all underneath that black basalt floor. And it spits out into that collection bowl. And it turns out that this inlet is right at the base of the pyramid. So if you turn around from this picture, you're looking directly at the base of the pyramid. Damn. So it is not only exactly where I expected it to be, but it's also integrated into what I was proposing the function of the entire site was. So this is as close to an original discovery from Egypt that I have ever made. And that being said, I have never moved a grain of sand in Egypt. This is just simply something that I happened to notice that no one else has ever really talked about. And it just was something I was looking for. And I was like, oh, shit, there it is. And I had a couple of those during this research expedition that I'll share with you during this trip. I actually brought home some legitimate archaeological discoveries. This is the first one that I have never seen reporting on any diagram. No one has ever discussed this in terms of the function of the site. No one ever talks about this stuff. So it's a, it's with great pleasure that I can you know actually reveal something of a legitimate archaeological nature. Again, I'm sure somebody's seen this and found this before, but this is something I can officially report as a quote unquote unique discovery. Let me ask you a question on this and congratulations on your discovery, dude, because this, the bold, everything was something that I did want an update on. And here you are with new information about it. Now, it's, you awesome, said, right? it's incredible, dude. I'm so fucking proud of you. Now, when you turn around and you see the pyramid, does this continue into the pyramid or is this something that starts outside? So basically like everything's contained within and then there's a way to get it to there, almost like another bucket or a mechanism that would transfer from inside the pyramid to to outside or does this is this like an exposed area yeah. of something that continues all the way through that's a great question and this is kind of where the imagination starts to run wild so if you turn around from there you're literally looking at the rubble 
from where the casing stones mm. and everything from that portion of the temple has been destroyed. So literally there's this, the inlet, but turn around and it's dirt. You know, it's, it's completely void in that. Maybe I didn't, no, I didn't put a picture in here because I have some pictures showing the, the reverse side of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's on my, it's on my YouTube channel. I put a video up and I have a, a full site tour from all of these sites that I'm talking about. So I have full like documentary style footage from all of these sites that I'm going to be putting out. A couple of the episodes are out already on my YouTube channel, but nonetheless. So if you turn around, that portion of the structure is completely destroyed. So the original casing stones are gone. The remains of the temple at that area are gone. So you can't really tell what kind of component was there. You know, did it fit into the casing stone? Yeah. Did that inlet like go into a hole in the casing stone and then flow down there? Yeah. There's no way to tell. You know, it'd be a good thing to destroy if you didn't want that knowledge out there. Like you just destroy oh, yeah. that part and leave a shaft and people just think, oh, there's just, you know, and, and like you said, nobody, it, they may have noticed it, but not even put anything together that it, the, what they were looking at was fantastic. So even from like a simple interpretation standpoint, okay, so if this isn't for chemicals, what was it for? Yeah. What were they putting in this inlet? that then flowed underneath the temple through this conduit made of rare red quartzite. Was it water? Why would they go through all that extra effort of just pouring water through there? That doesn't make any sense. Maybe you know, mono was it monatomic gold, maybe. So there, <laughs> and that's what everybody. So when I start talking about the Egyptian pyramids being related to the production of chemicals, everybody immediately goes to the processing of gold and monatomic gold. Mm -hmm. So I will say that processing of gold and metallurgy in general was one of the biggest preoccupations of this ancient civilization. They were making metals on a large scale. They had metals. And in terms of like the purity of gold, so like in South America, for example, they find gold that's 99.999% purity. Well, you cannot obtain that purity of gold from raw ore smelting. It's just not going to happen. It's going to have other impurities and stuff in it. So for them to be able to obtain super pure gold, you have to chemically process it. You have to separate it with acids. You break it down into uh, chlorooric acid, which is basically gold nanoparticles, monoatomic gold, which you can then melt into metallic gold. And it's super pure gold because it's made from gold nanoparticles. So that's what everybody talks about when they're talking about monoatomic gold is simply gold that's been processed with aqua regia and turned into basically microscopic particles of gold, which yeah. I think is a super, super interesting idea. There's a guy by the name of Lawrence Gardner that was doing some research in regard to the Ark of the Covenant and monoatomic gold in Egypt. And he has some very, very interesting research that's out there on YouTube um, about, again, the, the usage of the Ark and this civilization's knowledge of monoatomic gold, perhaps eating this monoatomic gold. That's what I've heard it was uh, pretty used for. Now, you know, let me ask you this, and I'm sure you've thought of this. Could each pyramid have been the production site of a different material? Meaning that like yeah. here we, we have, you know, like factories that do oil. We have factories that do concrete, but they don't do the same thing. You know what I mean? So could one have been yeah. producing pneumonia for crops? Then you go down the street to this industrial district. It, this, this could have just been a huge industrial site. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's exactly what it is in yeah, my theory like, and the way I've proposed it. So for example... This is the red pyramid here, which was for the production of aqueous ammonia solution. So you're making a 
not liquid ammonia, because that's a little bit different, but gaseous ammonia dissolved, basically like ammonia cleaning solution you have under your counter. That's an ammonia solution. So this one was producing the ammonia solution, but the bent pyramid behind it was turning that ammonia solution into a solid fertilizer compound. So here you could get your aqueous ammonia directly because ammonia can be used for other things. You can use it for textiles. You can use it for cosmetics. You can use it for pharmaceuticals. So you would want to have access to that raw material exclusively, but then you also have exactly the same as we have in our modern day industrial scale chemical plants. They'll have an ammonia factory here, and then you'll have your urea factory or your nitric acid factory, where it's turning the original product into a secondary chemical. And that's exactly what was happening in Dashur with the conversion of ammonia into ammonium bicarbonate. But that was also what was happening on the Giza plateau as the Great Pyramid was producing a sulfuric acid solution, which was then converted into hydrochloric acid inside of the Central Pyramid. So these these structures work in conjunction. And then I would also propose that the temples and the facilities that were located in, in proximity to these pyramids were processing plants where they were taking the large scale chemicals and converting them in small scale applications to make goods or products or whatever it was. So you're, you're hundred percent, right. It was a, it was an industrial manufacturing district. Damn. You could just imagine somebody in the future stumbling upon like a, a car manufacturing plant and doing the same thing that we're doing here with it and just being like, what were these monkeys doing? You know? Yeah. Re- reverse engineering it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so that's, that's what I've proposed. So the, the science of Egyptology, right? The beginning of the narrative of the Egyptian civilization was developed in the late 1800s and early 1900s prior to our modern industrial revolution. So the idea of an industrial scale chemical manufacturing plant had not even come up yet. So that wasn't even a concept that people could envision as being a function for these structures. So these are guys who weren't scientists, they weren't chemical engineers, they were basically you know, rich aristocrats that were interested in history, looking to make a name in the burgeoning science of Egyptology. So they went over there and they investigated these things. And of course they were tombs because they didn't have the ability to conceive of them being anything else because they didn't have the knowledge of manufacturing chemicals on an industrial scale. And I would propose, and I have that, so for example, Fritz Haber, the Haber process and our industrial scale, modern manufacturing process for producing ammonia, I think was found its origin in the function of the red pyramid. So when people came along later, after the original narrative was already established that they're tombs, people started to go investigate these things and started to discover that there was more to it than the original narrative actually stated. And this is where we get the beginning of our modern industrial revolution. So by reverse engineering the red pyramid of Dashur, it has the exact same physics embodied in that structure that were later replicated on a small scale for the modern industrial ammonia manufacturing apparatus. Just absolutely mind blown, dude, because what you're touching on here is so damn important because not only do you have a reverence for these folks and you're actually increasing their IQ for all of us uh, as you go. And we already know that they're tremendous, but really you have such a reverence for these people and what they knew and the technology and you're giving them so much more credit than these 
Egyptologist, which again, why I just absolutely adore your perspective and love talking to you about this, dude. But this makes me think of things like upas, right? Where you find like yeah. uh, what people will say is a, an Adidas tennis shoe on a mummy or one of these cell phones or one of these, uh, you know, um, hammers, a clear hammer that they found yeah. out in Texas in like 400 million year old coal. Well, it tells me that, you know, these cycles go through here and we just kind of you know, it just history repeating and we just kind of have to discover it through the shit that's been left over after a reset and that we yep. go through these every now and then, but we seem to kind of come back to the same understandings at some level, some more primitive and due to entropy probably, but it's just fascinating. And again, the what you point out about why Egyptology was established in the first place and how they viewed it, even though no bodies were found in there or most of them. Then now you look at it under the lens of the Industrial Revolution, and you've come back and taken a look at these things and gone, actually, they're probably this. And it's right. it's fascinating, dude. Absolutely fascinating. Right. So, so had those guys had the knowledge that we had today, we might have a completely different story about what this civilization really was. And I really like um, you know those uh, out-of-place artifacts like the aluminum wedge of Aweed. They found this aluminum wedge yes. you know, buried really far underground and it's like this crazy aluminum wedge well to me again that's just the civil indications of an ancient civilization that had knowledge of metallurgy and chemistry and you know you and i have gone offline on some discussions and you know that i entertain as far out there as hypothesis as they get like i love pushing the envelope about this kind of stuff but i try to walk the line in my theory of being relative and compatible to the dynastic Egyptian civilization story, but also incorporating the idea that it was much more advanced in terms of the knowledge of that civilization and also the antiquity of that civilization. I don't believe it started right when they say it started, you know, 2500 BC is the beginning of the dynastic Egyptian civilization. I think that pyramid building was happening way before that time period. And the time frame of the dynastic Egyptian civilization needs to be pushed back several thousand years to incorporate this more advanced knowledge that came before the dynastic period. This is, again, why I love you and your work is because you're, there's a gap in our understanding of what we find and what we're presented with and observe in our reality and then you know how it, how it was obtained. And that gap, you're filling in with actual reasonable science. You know We don't have to jump straight to aliens, which is a lot of fun, but right. you're already making some phenomenal discoveries on walking that line that are super impressive, man. I mean, this is way beyond woo-woo to me. This is cooler than woo-woo, to be honest with you, because it's it shows it's so practical. much. It's practical. That's exactly the word I was looking for. Thank it, you, Jeff. And so even like in my first trip to Egypt, I went looking for electricity. Mm-hmm. That's why I was going in search of trying to prove with on-site investigations that these structures were somehow related to the production of electricity. It's just, I didn't find it. You know, as much as I was enthusiastic about that idea. And I knew about Christopher Dunn's work. And that's where the majority of the alternative theories about the Egyptian pyramids, you know, kind of speculate that they're all about the production of electricity. Well, I didn't see that. But what I did see were indications of knowledge of chemistry, which is very, very compatible with what we know about the Egyptian civilization. Anyway, Egypt was the birthplace of chemistry. That's where we get our modern word for alchemy, chemistry, Again, my book, the title of the book is a play on words. The land of C-H-E-M is the land of chemistry, a play on words for the original name of Egypt, which is the land of chem, which is where we get our modern word for alchemy. They were producing cosmetics. They were producing metals. They were producing you know, pigments and all this sort of stuff on an industrial scale. Even like uh, there's a substance called Egyptian blue. 
which is one of the first synthetic pigments ever produced on the planet. So everything in Egypt is painted with this blue color. So for them to have enough paint just to paint all this shit, you got to be making paint on a fairly large scale. So you have to be producing this synthetic chemical, at least on a relatively industrial scale to be able to survive, uh, supply your paint manufacturers. So even just that story, just about making the paint is an indication of a civilization that had industrial scale manufacturing. So it's, it's compatible with the story of the dynastic Egyptians, but it's a little bit more genuine and incorporating the knowledge that I really think they had, which I think that's what's get, what gets removed from the story is that they're, they're very much want a linear progression of knowledge, right? And that's not the way it is at all. It's very cyclical. Yeah. And you said cosmetics, and I bet they didn't, they had more wisdom than to have a bunch of camels running around with lipstick on to test their products on animals. You know what I mean? And we'll get to cosmetics here in just a sec because that ties into metallurgy. And hey, man, keep an eye on the time because once you get me started, I will just keep on going. I was going to say that. So I'm going to get out of your way. Please continue. (laughs) We just, we can do this. No, no, it's all good. Go ahead. Um, Because I think we've already been on for an hour and I haven't even got started in the damn presentation yet. Okay, go ahead. so, but nonetheless, okay, so moving on with the 2022 research expedition. So this is a site called Abu Ghraib, which is another site that is inaccessible to the public. And it's not even a pyramid. This is what's known as a solar temple. And this is a giant obelisk raising out of the center of the structure. So already very, very unusual and a little bit contradictory to the conventional narrative that all of these things were is tombs. Okay, so if these things are tombs, what the hell is this thing? Okay, so you'll notice in this diagram, you don't see any bowls here. But what we found on site, and everybody talks about these, are all these bowls at Abu Ghraib. And you can see that there's three holes drilled into these collection bowls. And I discovered, well, again, I don't want to say this is actually my discovery because this has to be known about. But these bowls are actually housed, and I found the original housing for these bowls, which is located on the northeastern, northwestern, southeastern, and southwestern side of this temple. And there were four bowls configured on each corner. So there was something flowing into these bowls through those holes, which are configured with very weird angles. And they had 16 bowls surrounding this solar temple. So there's these bowls that are made out of limestone, which are the ones that were originally housed on the corners of the solar temple. And then there, oh, I didn't put a picture in here, but there's another set of bowls at this same site that are carved from calcite or alabaster. So again, there is something very unusual that was happening at this site that is not reported in any of the conventional literature. It's not shown on any of the diagrams. And this is the diagram that you find of this site. So this is what it looks like, they say. Where are the bowls? You know, they those, don't even show the original housings on here. This is phenomenal. Uh, the bowls, the picture of the bowls, do you mind pulling yeah. that up again? Okay, so where the three inlets come in, do you know what I'm reminded yep. of? You know how epoxy comes in the strip with the two chemicals that you need to mix yeah. together to create yep. what you're really after? 100%. Okay. You nailed it. Okay. Yep, that's exactly what I, it's for mixing. Yep. You know, we have one coming in in one direction, one coming in the other direction. They spin around. So we've also been doing experiments, right? With fluid dynamics and stuff. And I have some videos on my channel with the fluid dynamics experiment where we tested my theory 
about the function of the red pyramid and filling these chambers up with water. Well, turns out it works exactly the way I thought it would work in terms of the water rising in the chamber, moving into the third and final chamber. So I'm also going to have the same guy set up an experiment using this configuration because you can see that the this kind of curves in here. This other one kind of curves in in the other direction, and this one goes in straight. So I want to put some different liquids, you know, have one starting in one direction, one starting in all three starting at once with different configurations and different, um, you know, different ways to make it work, starting with one and then bringing another one in, et cetera. So we're going to test these fluid dynamics to see what would happen inside of these bowls. Maybe it creates a, a vortex or something. I don't know. We've got to see what actually happens. So it's a very interesting way to, again, use modern science, reverse engineering, experimentation and demonstration to see what these things really are. And I will say the calcite bowls or the alabaster bowls that we found, there's also a lining of copper oxide found inside of those bowls. So the bowls were sheathed in copper. So, which is another very, very interesting discovery. Have you ever seen these copper sounding bowls? You know, yeah. And then I'm thinking of electroculture with this uh, new, oh. you know, rediscovered, um, you know, using copper in water and you don't have algae or mosquitoes. Uh, you use it in your garden and you have no pests and your plants grow to the height of the stick yep. that you put the copper on. I mean, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I saw, I saw that video recently. You just posted on your um, IG about, you know, electromagnetic energy and agriculture. Yes, yes. It's hey, what, are, what are we talking about here? Yep. This is electromagnetic energy and agriculture. Mm. This is exactly what these structures were designed to do. You know, and the pyramids so are like orgone energy harvesters anyway, with all the elements and how they um, produce. And this is, you know, perhaps where the missing capstones go. This is like the, you know, copper capstone on top that would be this electroculture type of, a you know, configuration. So this was a civilization that was predicated upon industrial scale agriculture. Right. So they were making fertilizers. I have an idea of what this temple is. So let's say it was, you know, like copper sounding bowls that produce this frequency of acoustic vibrations Ooh. that are very, very beneficial to human beings, right? In terms of our overall health, right? We know that sound can cure cancer, right? All these sorts of things. This is what I'm integrating in the second book. So my first book is called An Initiation into Ancient Chemistry Through the Degrees of the Egyptian Pyramids because it's just an initiation into the concept and some of the basic physics in the operation of these structures. I mean, the second book is taking everything to an exponential degree and revealing what I truly believe is the ultimate goal of these structures. So this is not for producing chemicals, it's for producing something else. Uh, maybe even um, amplifying orgone energy to be able to propagate across the land. You know, we we have this conversation about star forts and things like that, how they were always had water and how perhaps and the yeah. crops around them just amplified like crazy. And maybe this was a way to kind of it's the good vibe pyramid. You know, it, it lets everything grow like crazy and it, it propagates this energy out. So I'll reveal a huge secret of ancient masonry, right? Ancient actual stone masonry. So by building structures with sacred geometric patterns. You are mimicking the frequency, the vibration, and the thumbprint, the fingerprint of the universe, right? So by building structures that have certain patterns of sacred geometry, certain measurements, it's called harmonic convergence. And if you put these structures on the right place on the planet, again, we're gonna talk in a second about the electromagnetic grid field of the earth. 
and these vortexes and ley lines and the convergences of electromagnetic energy. If you put the right structure on the right place in the planet, you're going to absorb the electromagnetic energy coming out of the earth at that planet, at that point. And if that structure is configured with the sacred geometric patterns of the universe, you have a harmonic convergence of mathematics, geometry, and electromagnetic energy. Damn. And all of the struct, this is, this is a, again, it's not a secret. That's just the way they used to build structures in the ancient times. And we still do this today, but we used modern materials. So these skyscrapers designed by like I am pay and these modern architects, they all still use sacred geometry because it causes an intrinsic physiological reaction to anybody entering the structure. So if you go into a cathedral or any sort of structure that's, for example, like the Karnak temple in Luxor, all of these temples are built using sacred geometry and the patterns of the universe, right? So as soon as you cross over the threshold of that structure, you're entering into something that's been designed with the divine pattern of the universe. So simply by building your structure with those shapes, it causes a physiological, spiritual experience in the person experiencing that because it has intrinsic beauty. You don't know why it looks beautiful, but a structure built with not sacred geometry compared to a structure built with sacred geometry, this one is going to look absolutely gorgeous compared to this one. And you won't know why, but it's just sort of that intrinsic beauty and the natural patterns of the, the development of the universe are encoded into that building. So that's a very, very powerful technique that was utilized in the ancient world to create this spiritual experience. And even being in proximity to the pyramids, just standing there, you're already in the proximity of a structure that was designed to absorb electromagnetic energy coming out of the earth at that point. And it's designed to resonate with that specific electromagnetic pattern. Damn. I mean, truth has a frequency. You can feel it. Absolutely. And so it would make absolute sense. I love this, dude. Love this. So the, so this, again, I don't claim to know all of the answers about the Egyptian pyramids. And the, I will say the more that I go in my research, the more I realize how little I truly know about this. And I feel like I have taken on probably the most difficult task that has ever been, um, you know, attempted by anyone researching Egyptian pyramids is to decipher the function of all of these structures simultaneously, right? So everybody always focuses on the function of the Great Pyramid, the Great Pyramid. Well, what about all the rest of them? So if the Great Pyramid had this miraculous function, what are all the rest of them doing? So that is what I've tried to propose in my book is a function that incorporates a comprehensive overview of the function of all of the Egyptian pyramids that addresses the physics and you know, engineering inside of these structures. And it works on every single structure. They were producing a different chemical. And again, I think it's the best attempt out there to give a comprehensive overview of what the big picture is. Yep. Could not agree more, dude. Amazing. And so this is just a picture after my day on the Giza Plateau. So we did everything this year, man. It was fucking awesome. Um, so step pyramid, red pyramid, bent pyramid, Abu Sir, Abu Ghraib. Then I had two days on the Giza plateau. The first day was just doing the great pyramid. And then I did a walk around the Giza plateau. The second day we had our private access into the, uh, Osiris shaft system. And then we went to the central pyramid. And I also have on my IG, I did a two and a half hour live tour from on the Giza plateau or during my last day in Egypt. So I literally took my phone up there the last morning. 
And I just went live on IG for two and a half hours walking around the Giza Plateau and showing everybody everything that I've seen out there. Damn. Yeah, the wife and I are super excited. We're going with you on one of these. Oh, dude, it's again, every year I go, it gets better and better. And um, so next year we'll, we'll start doing some group stuff. And I was very fortunate this year that, uh, you know, certain circumstances happened where I ended up going alone. And this was my first trip going to Egypt alone. And it was absolutely spectacular because I was able to fully immerse myself in what I was doing. And we got some amazing footage. And again, the research I came back with this year is going to completely change. Well, if you think what I've done this far is interesting, just wait until what you see in the second book. It's outstanding. Outstanding. So this, so this is a picture of the Osiris shaft. This is the gate that they had to unlock. And you see the Great Pyramid here. And this is the causeway of the Central Pyramid. And this thing goes 120 feet underneath the causeway. So we got special permission to go down inside of the Osiris shaft. And this is what it actually looks like down there. So you go down the first level to shaft level one. You go down another one to level two, which is where these sarcophagus are all located. And I think I have it. Oh, I didn't even put it in here. So I discovered inside of these chamber housings, there are massive deposits of iron oxide. And it looks like a bar of iron running over the top of each one of these container housings down inside of this shaft system. And that's another discovery that I made coming back from this trip that I've never heard discussed before. And we also, I discovered while well, inside of the central pyramid. So the central pyramid has massive deposits of iron oxide all outside of the structure. And Yusuf had discovered that there's iron oxide deposits inside the core of the pyramid itself. So the pyramid is built on a natural mound. In that natural mound, the deposits of iron oxide continue up into the natural mound in the core of the pyramid. So that's pretty unusual, and I would think very important and relevant to the function of the structure. But I also found inside of the primary reaction chamber that there was a vein of iron oxide running around the entire chamber. And the container on the western side of that chamber could have been, so there's a deep pit that looks like they dug out the pit and scooped out all of the iron oxide that was originally in that pit. So it appears that the container itself was embedded in a deposit of iron oxide within the primary reaction chamber. So that was another 100% unique discovery that I made. I, mean, I have some videos and stuff on my channel about this. Um, we came back with some legitimate archeological findings that I've never seen reported, documented, discussed anywhere else on any channel. And even in the historical literature, nobody talks about these veins of iron oxide, which it is absolutely relevant to the function of these structures and chambers. It almost sounds like that's why they built the pyramid there. It's kind of like geomancy. 100%. Yeah, when you walk over, you find this thing, you're like, yeah, right here on this spot, let's just build the thing up. Well, so even in the way that this, this shaft system was excavated, they had to know exactly where these housings were going to land so that it could be excavated into that deposit. Yeah. So, again, the geomapping blows my mind. How did they know where the deposits were? How did they know how far underground the deposits went? So they knew this, the, the iron oxide deposit went 120 feet into the earth in these specific locations so that they could excavate the container housing so it would be in the exact location of that vein. Damn. Again, that, that part. So people always talk about the complexity of the construction of the pyramids, building the pyramids. Okay, yeah, that's great. 
And that's a wonderful mystery. How did they do all this other stuff? Yeah. Even, yeah. even just leveling and the preparation of the Giza plateau, because you can't start building pyramids unless your thing is completely flat, your surface. So even the preparation and the leveling and the excavation of all the stones and the building of all this underground shit, this, this happened a thousand years before they even built the pyramids. So it is, it's, again, the, the conventional story is so limited and there's so much more to be told that I think further enriches. It doesn't take anything away from the dynastic narrative. If anything, it enriches it and it adds so much more knowledge and um, you know, antiquity to the civilization that I just wish some of this stuff was more in the pu public realm of you know, accepted history. We're working on it, buddy. Yeah, slowly but surely, right? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that was, that's what it looks like. And you can see the water down in here. So you go down again, this rickety ass metal letter and all of this is underwater here and I have some awesome pictures from down inside of him. It's crystal clear, just look like a blue lagoon. It was very, very strange to be in there. What's and of course, like, go ahead. What's it feel like in there? Oh, dude, it scared the shit out of me. Really? So you had fear? Very, very scary. Oh, yeah. So before, so we're up here on ground level, about to go down to level one, and the lights go off. So they have electricity down inside this thing, but it just seems like every time we go into these, the, the electricity goes off. So the lights were, it was completely dark. So we had to go in with headlamps. So it was like a legitimate adventure going down. You're climbing down this thing. I can't even see to the bottom of the shaft. It's 60 feet below me. All it is is a pit of pure darkness. You're climbing down this rickety ass ladder to get down there. And I turn on my headlamp and I turn around and I'm in this section. Wow. And it's completely pitch black in there. All I have is my headlamp. And there are these containers, again, thousands, 7,000 years old containers. And I knew that they were coated with this exotic metal, right? So the metal that they found, and I'll give you the exclusive reveal because I haven't even made this yet. So they discovered using, again, scanning electron microscopy discovery, this Russian team discovered a coating on these containers that contains titanium, iron, arsenic, lead, and zinc. And it was extremely high content of titanium. Unbelievable. So it was incredibly fat. And I found that chemical analysis probably two weeks before I went on this trip. So it was like brand new discovery to know what was actually coding these things. And they actually did Geiger counter readings. So they took a Geiger counter down inside of this shaft system and they tested the ambient radiation in the chamber itself compared to the radiation inside of the container. And it was almost double inside of the container. Jesus. So there's remnants of radioactivity down inside of these containers that are a hundred feet underneath the Giza plateau. And they are a thousand years older than the pyramids themselves. So what the hell was this system? Who built this and what was the function of it? They call it the burial for Osiris, but it definitely is not a burial. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, with all the radiation, uh, perhaps they were doing some really dangerous shit down there and that's why they wanted to bury it. That's a very good thought. Again, kind of my thought with the Serapium, right? Why would you go through all that trouble of, you know, building that tunnel system underground to house those containers? Well, there may have been something going on in those containers that they didn't want exposed to the atmosphere. So that's, again, my one of the explanations for the function of the body of the pyramid itself is preventing environmental contamination. 
So if you're manufacturing chemicals inside of a structure, you don't want those chemicals getting out into the atmosphere. So that's one of the reasons for the massive body of stones that surround the containers or the chambers themselves, again, is to prevent environmental contamination. So that could be an explanation for why these things are buried so far underground. Yeah, like a clean room. So that being said, on to the electromagnetic field experiment. So this is a machine that produces an electromagnetic field. And back in, I think it was 20, again, I forget what years we actually did these things, probably 2020, we did an experiment that tested the different types of geology. So we tested limestone, we tested red granite, we tested black basalt, and we tested calcite crystal in proximity to the electromagnetic energy field coming out of this machine. You can see here that he has a copper wire. And it doesn't even have to be a copper wire. You can just touch it with your finger. Hmm. So when you turn on the machine and you touch the copper wire or your finger to the machine, it does not do anything. But as soon as you put a piece of limestone on top of that machine and you touch it with the copper wire, there will be an electrical discharge between the piece of limestone into the copper wire. And I have videos of this on my YouTube channel where we do the full experiment. So the limestone is allowing the electromagnetic energy to flow through the stone. However, it absorbs the magnetic component and it allows an electrical discharge into your finger or into the wire. So then we tested black basalt. Black basalt does the exact same thing. Black basalt allows the electromagnetic current to flow through the stone and discharge electricity into the wire or into your finger. However, we tested red granite and crystalline white uh, calcite crystal. And red granite and calcite crystal do not produce any discharge whatsoever. So what happens, again, we tested limestone, samples of limestone that are the body of the pyramid itself. We tested samples of the red granite, which the king's chamber inside of the Great Pyramid is made completely of red granite. Black basalt, which we find all over the sites of Egypt, the Eastern Temple. This is from Abu Sir here on the right. And then we tested calcite crystal. So this is a conduit here on the right that's been carved into calcite crystal that's found at the pyramid of Winis. So again, if this was just a, um, you know, a sewer system or piping or whatever, why would they go through all the extra trouble of carving it out of crystal yeah. and burying it underneath the temple itself if it was just a simple sewer system? So again, we tested the interaction of all of these different types of stone. So the limestone allows the electromagnetic energy to flow through. The black basalt allows the electromagnetic energy to flow through. But the red granite and the quartz trap the electromagnetic energy in the stone, and it's because of the crystalline quartz. So the electromagnetic energy flows into the crystalline quartz, and it gets trapped in the microcrystalline fragments inside of this stone. So limestone and black basalt don't have any crystalline material in there. So it allows that electromagnetic energy to just flow right through the stone. But another unique thing about this experiment is that the magnetic component is being eliminated from the electromagnetic field, and it's only allowing an electric discharge. But the red granite and the quartz contain all of that energy. 
And you can feel, if you put your hand around a piece of that red quartz, you can feel the vibrations coming off of the quartz because all that energy is getting trapped into the crystalline stone inside of the red granite. Damn. You know, this configuration looks like the king's chamber, doesn't it? Uh, so it's actually a replication of what's called the Jed pillar. And you'll see that pillar that has the stacks on it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a replication of the Jed pillar, which was a limestone pillar that had alternating columns of black basalt and red granite. That's right. So now remember, these are alternating layers of absorption and containing, right? So uh, transmission and absorption. Mm -hmm. So they're alternating. One layer transmits, the next layer absorbs. Next layer transmits, the next layer absorbs. Jesus. So there is functionality within the geology utilized in these structures because these pyramids are built. So replace this machine down here at the bottom with the earth. So the earth produces this electromagnetic energy field. Okay. Imagine this is a pyramid sitting right on that convergence of electromagnetic energy to harness the energy that's coming out of the earth at that point. So the pyramid body is made out of limestone. The limestone is allowing that electromagnetic energy to flow into the structure. Let's take the Great Pyramid, for example. The interior chambers, the king's chamber, is made of red granite. So the electromagnetic energy flows from the earth through the limestone into the red granite and gets trapped in the red granite. I won't say why that's the case, because it has a function as related to the production of chemicals, and that's in the second book. But all of this is functional geology. Again, going back to my original point about the knowledge of geology and the properties of these different minerals, because it's all very functional. So this was electromagnetic field experiment number one. But when we went back this year, I knew that I wanted to test the shape of the pyramid itself. So the, the actual pyramid. So I had Yusuf carve some pyramids out of limestone and out of red granite and out of the different types of material. And we tested to see what the effect of the electric discharge is at the base of the pyramid versus the top of the pyramid. So that was the, the justification for that experiment to see what the difference is and see if there's a difference at the top of the pyramid versus the base. And there was a rather spectacular difference that I did not anticipate. <laughs> Go on. It's, what was it's coming it? out soon. I can't <laughs> reveal it. the results of the experiment yet. Because again, right. subscribe to the Land of Chem on YouTube. Click that little notification bell so you get notice when the new videos premiere every week. Um, but no, that's that's coming up soon on the YouTube channel. Uh, but that's just kind of a teaser because, it, I, again, I had this spectacular idea for what was going to happen. Uh, but sometimes these things are a little counterintuitive. So this is the results of this one was counterintuitive to me. Because I expected the material with the quartz and the metal. So red granite has very high metal content and very high quartz content. And I expected the red granite to act like the conductor. But it, 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 it reacts the exact opposite. It's not a conductor at all. It actually traps all of that electromagnetic energy in the stone itself and doesn't allow anything to pass through. Outstanding. And of so, course, all the ways to find you linked in the show notes, guys, definitely check him out. Go subscribe. <laughs> he does incredible work. Incredible work. It, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, dude. It, like, again, every time I go back, I come back with more very, very compelling research. And again, these little experiments are just kind of like one little step, little yeah. step, one step at a time. 
And that's why we're producing more of these uh, fluid dynamics experiments and trying to test some of the physics and chemistry that are involved in my theory. And so this is a picture from inside of the red pyramid to show what the chambers look like before. So now there's a staircase here, a big wooden staircase that covers this entire area that gets you up to here to go into the third chamber. But this is what the staining looks like inside of the red pyramid. And everyone says that this is from bat piss. And again, the first time I went in here, I was like, that is nonsense. Mm -hmm. I immediately knew that that was absolute bullshit. So again, they did, this is from the ACIDA project, did scanning electron microscopy discovery using amazing real high technology. This is one of the crystalline fragments that they discovered in this sample. And I'm gonna run through this pretty quick. So everybody says that the conventional explanation is bat urine. Well, this is the chemical composition of bat urine. You have carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, ammonia, NH3, right? Normal organic compounds. Well, as you start to evaluate this chemical analysis, there is almost zero organic matter in any of these stains. So this is discovery number one. Nothing really unusual here. You have oxygen, sodium, potassium, sulfur, chlorine, um, phosphorus, and potassium. Nothing unusual there. Another sample. This is all very normal stuff. You have uh, carbon, oxygen, sodium, magnesium, silicon, um, phosphorus, sulfur, chlorine, potassium, calcium. Nothing unusual there. Then you start going on to even further one. So everything is pretty normal here until you get to barium down at the bottom. So almost 10% of this sample is barium. So as these samples go along, they get further and further away from anything that could have a biological origin. Mm. So already we're not seeing any nitrogen. We're not seeing any hydrogen. So none of this is ammonia based. So next up, all pretty normal stuff here until you get down here. This is molybdenum. So almost 3% of this sample is molybdenum, 50% chlorine. So these samples that they're looking at are getting further and further away from things that are biological origin. Because where the hell are you getting molybdenum from? Molybdenum is a very rare exotic earth metal. Okay, so on to the next one. So again, carbon, oxygen, uh, phosphorus, sulfur, chlorine, potassium, calcium, and copper. So this is 50% by weight of copper. Yeah. Okay, so if this is bat urine or bat piss, it wouldn't have any copper in it. So again, we, we have now crossed the threshold of proving that this material has absolutely nothing to do with biological origin. So next up, this next one is almost 90% zinc. So again, 90% metal. This is not of biological origin in any way, shape, or form. So this is almost pure zinc. Next up, chemical composition here, very similar to what we saw before. This is almost 60% iron. So now we have molybdenum, iron, and zinc in very, very high concentrations in these samples. Again, not bat piss, basically have conclusively proved that at this point. So next up, this is one of my favorite ones, 50% antimony. So antimony was one of the first metals being studied and extracted in its pure state by the medieval alchemists. And the dynastic Egyptians were using antimony and antimony sulfides as cosmetics and pharmaceuticals. There was a substance called coal, which is an eyeliner, a black eyeliner that is made of antimony oxides and antimony sulfides. So they clearly knew about antimony. 
they were not only extracting it, but they were processing and using it. We don't hear about this anywhere in the conventional narrative of dynastic Egypt, but it's very, very clear in this sample and also in some of the samples that I've discussed previously, antimony always comes up. So they clearly knew about this metal. They were using it for other compounds and they had also used it here within the red pyramid. So there's a lot of stuff in these samples that are background elements that you could normally find in any sort of stone. So there's nothing unusual about this stuff. However, the high concentrations of these metals is very, very unusual. So there's two different parts to look at at this sample. You have background stuff and things that are naturally going to be in the stone. And then you have things that are in such significant concentration that they cannot be a natural part of the stone. Also remember that limestone is made of calcium carbonate. And we'll get to that here in just a moment. So the next one, this is where it gets even more unusual. This one down here at the bottom, 40% thorium. And you may or may not be familiar with thorium from nuclear reactors mm -hmm. and as a byproduct of nuclear reactions. Damn. So again, very, very unusual this to find thorium in a sample when this is supposed to be bat piss. Yeah, and I mean, this This brings us back to the Osiris shaft, which maybe that's why they buried right. it. Maybe that's why there's water in the bottom. It has all the elements of things that you would be mindful of if you're producing nuclear electricity or, or nuclear power or something like that. So I will say that within these chambers, there were very high temperature, very high pressure reactions mm. that were utilizing electromagnetic fields. So the interactions of all of these forces and mechanics you know, could have produced some, some interesting results. Again, I don't, I don't claim to know all of the minute details of the operation of these structures. And again, the thorium is a very, very unusual compound to find, especially in that high of a concentration. And I have a, a hypothesis about what this material is and why it was, what it's doing in here. Um, I don't necessarily think they were doing nuclear reactions, but I think it may have been a byproduct of what was occurring inside of these structures. Well, it's super interesting when you find stuff like this, and especially the uh, reports of vitrified glass found all over the Sahara, uh, which is, yep. of course, nuclear reaction that it got so hot that this melted melted sand turns into this glass-like material. And then you think of uh, the pyramids that they found that have been with the blocks all over the place that look like they were exploded from the inside. Right. So it could so again, have been some sort of like uh, either sabotage or, um, you know, accident, let's say, uh, just like some ancient Chernobyl of some kind. So like you just said, like the, they exploded from the inside. That's another reason for the body of stones surrounding the chambers. Pressure. So inside of these chambers, incredibly high temperature and pressure. Yeah. And if you don't have all of those stones to encase your reaction chambers, the entire thing is going to explode to pieces. And I found this very interesting mural on a hotel wall painting in Luxor that shows the red pyramid and the top of the pyramid is blowing off and there's steam coming outside of the pyramid. And this is on a mural inside a hotel and the pyramid is submerged in water and there's a boat with a bunch of animals in front of the pyramid. So it's a mural that's not only depicting the great flood, but also the explosion, the internal explosion of one of these pyramids on a hotel wall mural. 
See, because then you're thinking, like, if there was some great flood cataclysm and there was all this technology laying around that needed to have maintenance per, uh, performed on it every once in a while, if you flooded the whole place out and enabled people, inhibited people from getting in there and doing the maintenance, then it would create some sort of disaster, some sort of reaction, right? right. Yep. And, that, and that's kind of what I was proposing, is that the Egyptian pyramids were built during the time period from about 7,000 BC to 5,000 BC. And there was plentiful rainfall. It was called the Egyptian uh, or the, the Saharan wet period, mm -hmm. where there was a bunch of rainfall in the Sahara during that time period. And then all of a sudden, the environment changed, the rainfall stopped, the desiccation of the Sahara returned. And if these structures were predicated upon a certain amount of water being available, even the desiccation, the return of the desert could have been enough to make these structures inoperational. There were also a whole bunch of natural disasters that occurred around 5,000 to 3,500 BC, the Black Sea flood, all these other major floods in that time period that could have caused damage to the internal components of these structures that caused them to be inoperational. So there's a whole bunch of things that happened in the environment during that time period that certainly could have led to them becoming inoperational. Or even just say, you know, a reaction goes awry and like, you know, something explodes inside the pyramid or the temperature gets too high or whatever it might be. There's certainly a whole bunch of factors of why these things could become inoperational, and that's that's 100% right. Man, and now I'm thinking like if it was predicated on that much water and that the environment changed so much from that wet period that you're talking about, because even Dr. Robert Schock, this was one of his uh, yep. explanations for the Sphinx and chamber, uh, enclosure rather, and it seems like that, you know, if you knew that this, like, let's just say that you're in... Uh, Let's just let's just have some fun with it here for a second. Let's say that you are the Anunnaki and that you created this human race and then you came back and then you're like, holy shit, they figured all this stuff out. They're making all sorts of chemicals. They're actually, you know, kind of like a Prometheus thing, like an Enlil Ninki thing, like too much knowledge was given to these beings. Then what you could do if you had some sort of ancient advanced technology, because I know you know this too, even all the sand in the, sand in the Sahara is very hard to account for for geologists. They say that they Correct. don't know where the hell it came from. So this could be one of those things to where maybe your ship, your mothership flies over and dumps a shit ton of sand, completely screws up the water flow, completely changes the weather patterns. And then now you have this reaction, which could collapse a civilization, perhaps. And there is a lot of research about the Sahara that says that that sand was deposited very, very quickly. Yep. And they've done like cores into the sand where they, you know, tested wooden samples that are found deep in those cores and you know, it actually happened fairly recently where all that sand was deposited in the Sahara. It's not as old as people think it was. And there was a period in the Sahara where it was completely different than it is today. And again, I think if they were to drain the sand from the Sahara, that's where you're really going to find some of the secrets of the quote unquote ancient civilizations on the planet would be in the Western side of the Sahara. Now, not only have you added the whimsicalness of this fascination, but now this is my favorite conspiracy theory, easily. Oh, yeah. <laughs> easily. Also, well, again, the it's, fact it's, that all this information, by the way, came from your um, uh, Egyptian version of the Masons, which is pretty interesting. And we definitely- Oh, I can already... the, Asita pro the Asita project over there. So I don't. I actually don't think that they're affiliated with Masonry. Oh, look, um, at, that, look at that logo uh, there. Yeah, just, just again, so just because, remember this in general, just because people use logos and symbols- that are similar to Freemasonic symbols doesn't mean that they're actually members of the fraternity. And I know in discussing, because I've talked to these people before, so they are prolific in their knowledge of ancient actual masonry. So I think that this is more um, a symbol that is replicating the tools of ancient actual masonry. Because trust me, dude, I, 
being a Freemason myself, I know that these people are not Freemasons. Okay. And, and yes, and um, we're and just so the audience knows, I know I mentioned that we're going to do Freemasonry talk, but we we won't be able to in this one. So definitely, I'm going to get you booked back on just for a Freemason chat. So go ahead, right. please, sir. This is this is awesome. Oh, so let me yeah, let me let me finish up with this real quick because this is where it really gets interesting. So what I showed before are the SEM discoveries where they're using this machine to just zoom in on tiny microscopic particles. And they do a chemical analysis of those microscopic particles. So that's what we saw before. So this is the micro element composition of the whole sample, right? So it has all of those elements that we discussed before, iron, molybdenum, antimony, right? But also remember this list, and I'm going to forget the name of some of these, but cesium, praeodymium, neodymium. You ever heard of neodymium magnets? Yeah. So this entire list is extremely rare semi-radioactive earth metals like ytterbium for example this was first found in a remote mine in sweden and these metals have never been found anywhere else on the planet in terms of them being mined extracted and studied it also has like i mentioned thorium uranium right so some very very unusual semi-radioactive metals in this sample But the most important thing is here is strontium, which the vast majority of the chemical staining is strontium. So it turns out that the quote unquote limestone inside of the red pyramid is not calcium carbonate at all. It's a very, very unusual type of limestone that is strontium carbonate. So strontium in a natural geological environment, strontium can replace calcium in the limestone calcium carbonate lattice. So instead of calcium carbonate, it becomes strontium carbonate, okay? That goes back to my original point. How the hell did they know that this was strontium carbonate limestone and not calcium carbonate limestone? Because the red pyramid, the geology that was selected in the construction of this monument was selected very intentionally because it's a different type of limestone that's used anywhere else in Egypt. It has this red color. And there's actually three or four different types of limestone that were incorporated in the construction of the Red Pyramid. So we're again, we're looking at several different things in this chemical analysis. We're looking at the strontium. These stains are the result of extrusions of strontium. So the strontium within the stone itself is being heated and extruded out, squeezed out of the stone because of the fluctuations of temperature and pressure inside of these chambers. So high and low temperatures, fluctuation between high and low pressures is squeezing this material out of the stone and causing extrusions of the strontium to form on the surface. So that's factor number one in the chemical analysis. You're also looking at a very unique type of limestone that was harvested from a deposit that contains these radioactive minerals. So normal, these are very rare deposits of undersea limestone can contain these sort of percentages of radioactive elements. So the strontium and the background radioactive elements are natural parts of the stone. Again, how the hell did they know that it was this specific type of stone? But then we have the layer of iron and zinc and antimony and some of these other metals that are in too high of a concentration 
to occur naturally within the stone, but they're found on a surface layer. So again, these guys are taking samples from the surface. So the surface sample has not only parts of the limestone itself, it has parts of the strontium extrusions, but it also has remnants of a layer of material that was applied to the surface of the stone. You you find answers with this, man, but it only brings up so many damn more questions, which is unbelievable. <laughs> Tell me about Un- it. In the coolest fucking way, by the way. Unbelievable. I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so I've spent the past five years of my life dedicated to trying to unravel these mysteries. And when I first got this chemical analysis, dude, I was I was a little bit irritated yeah. because I could not figure out what this stuff was, why it was inside of these chambers, and how it was applicable to what I was looking at. And it took me about two weeks of, I literally had to research all the different types of elements that were in those samples find out what the natural concentrations could be in stone. If it was natural, how do you find that deposit of stone? Because it's only certain types of limestone that are going to have that stuff. Going back to our original conversation about the geological survey of the area, Mm. even that in and of itself is such a mind-blowing undertaking. How did they have the knowledge to be able to isolate and locate all of this different type of very specific type of geology? Just even that in and of itself is an amazing amount of knowledge that does not go recognized in any sort of discussion about the Egyptian pyramids or the Egyptians themselves. You know, something also that's ringing a bell here, again, phenomenal work, Jeff, uh, is, is you. if you turn your, that. dude, you're just amazing. If you turned your attention maybe over to, you know, when, when you get to a comfortable spot with this, or you can train somebody, okay, go look for this. You go to Egypt. I'm going to go to South America because what we're describing is when the environment in which this was all done was this lush, you know, uh, tropical area where there was a lot of water, a lot of trees, like you said, they can dig down into the sand and they find cord, they find petrified wood. So it was a huge forest that was, or a jungle perhaps is a better term for it that was covered up there. Now over in South America, they have all of that. They have all of the elements, but no sand. So do you think that you would find similar results over there in those pyramids as well? Or is that something you've even considered? I know your attention has been on Egypt, but now I'm just thinking about the interconnectivity of civilizations, how the pyramids were everywhere, how you have creatures holding the same bag in different civilizations, the three-door configuration, all of this stuff. So it could have been a similar thing, right? So the way I kind of propose the development of the story within the book is that the pyramids that exist on the planet now were built by the survivors of the cataclysm at the end of the last ice age. So let's say North America, there's a huge advanced civilization in North America. Great flood happens, massive cataclysm at the end of the last ice age. The survivors of that civilization then move all across the planet, Mm -hmm. South America, Africa, Europe, and Asia. And they start building structures that have the knowledge of this advanced civilization. Hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution now being encapsulated in structures that were intended to help them rebuild their civilization after the cataclysm. So they already have the knowledge. They're saying, hey, we got to get things going again. Let's start building these pyramids to produce chemicals that are going to help make food and benefit our civilization to help reestablish. So again, the the knowledge was already intact. And then as they branch out after the cataclysm, they start rebuilding this civilization. But then another cataclysm happens. And that was 
the story of the ancient world was cataclysm after cataclysm after cataclysm. And it's the story of these civilizations trying to rebuild themselves. Now, that being said, I'm certainly not opposed to the idea that the Egyptian pyramids are much older than that. Again, I just try to take realistic research that I have found. Again, it makes a lot more sense to me that the Egyptian pyramids were built during a wet period where there was a lot more water and trees and vegetation and stuff. So when I started researching that, I found the Saharan wet period yeah. in that time period from about 8,000 BC to 5,000 BC, which fits very nicely with the civilization that was moving from the 10,000 BC cataclysm, right? They're building structures like Gobekli Tepe to commemorate the civilization. It's again, to encode the astrological knowledge and the story of the survivors of that cataclysm. That's why I believe Gobekli Tepe was built. It was one of the first temples to commemorate the survivors of that civilization. So that's 10,000 BC. Fast forward 2000 years, now they're building pyramids. Hmm. And now we're at 8,000 BCE. Fast forward another 3000 years, we have cataclysms that bring all that to an end. And then we have the beginning of the dynastic civilization where they were spread out all across the Sahara, but now they're coming back to the Nile River because everything is a desert again. We can't live out there anymore. So now we have to come back to the Nile River. And that's what we see in the Narmer palette in the beginning of the dynastic Egyptian civilization around 3000 BC. Unbelievable, dude. So it's, it's a very, regardless of which aspect, I mean, I, I love the, you know, the Anunnaki theory and the gods bringing this knowledge down. And that's where I cut my teeth. I got started on this whole investigation, looking into the masonry and the esoteric secrets and the Anunnaki and all this kind of stuff back in like 2010. Um, so I was way, way deep down that rabbit hole. And as I've kind of worked my way out of there, you know, I've take, taken some stuff that I've incorporated and I'm certainly not opposed to the idea of, you know, ancient inter interdimensional beings that came down here and gave us some knowledge and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. That's maybe a discussion for another day. But um, again, there, there's, there's truth within this ancient mythology. I love it. Absolutely love it, dude. And yeah, I'm going to get you booked on when we wrap. I'm going to get you booked on very soon. Dude, I almost did two hours. I had, I had no intention of doing that whatsoever. I thought this was going to be a 45 minute presentation where I could run through this stuff real quick. Oh, no, it's because I, I won't let you do that. You know, I've got to be like, ooh, what about this? Ooh, what about this? And ask questions about stuff. So I knew this one. This one was, I was trying to get like to the this. Freemason chat, man. I was excited. You know, well, then we'll tease it because uh, this is something that we'll have to book very soon. I have a, a mother in law lunch here to go to. So uh, that's the only reason uh, that you and I aren't spending about 10 hours on this right now, but oh, yeah. uh, I'm going to get you booked on and we'll get you on a quick turnaround actually, because I don't want to want people sitting on that uh, tease for very long. So, and you're just way too damn cool to talk to. So this I appreciate it, man. And again, dude, this is just, this is literally old stuff. This ain't even the new shit. This is just what I've bringing you up to speed from our last conversation. So dude, this like, again, the, well, the more I go with my research, the more uncomfortable I become with the implications of this research, right? Because there's some things in this that I don't have the answers to. The only thing I'm trying to do is come up with a solution for how these things operated. I don't necessarily care who built them or where they came from, right? My focus is just on what they were doing. So there's a whole lot of other story involved that I just don't, I don't get too deep into that just because there's too much speculation involved. This I can, I can justify with empirical research. 
Right, and we like that because you're you're niching down, man, which is great. Because then all you know speculate wildly, and then we can all uh, let our minds wander on filling in the narrative here, but um, yeah. and connect it to other things that we've been researching, esoteric or not. But dude, your your information unbelievable. It's always so fucking cool to talk to you, man. Uh, and I like I said, oh, love love your new shirt. So let's see that thing again. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So Boom. brand new Land of Ken merch is available at thelandofken.com. So the new shirts are badass. This is the one that I'm currently wearing right now. Yeah. So it's an it's an alchemical symbol for hydrochloric acid on a raw image of the central pyramid. And I actually took this picture. I forget what year it was, but I took an awesome picture of the central pyramid and one of my supporters turned it into the new logo. But then this is the OG logo that I designed when I first published everything, which is the well, it's a representation of the red pyramid of Dashur with molecular ammonia inside of the structure. So that's my, I don't know if I covered the whole span of methane, ammonia, ammonium bicarbonate, hydrochloric acid, and sulfuric acid where the chemicals being produced in Egypt. And then I also talk about new grange and the passage chamber structures of Ireland also being related to the production of chemicals. So shirts are available at thelandofchem.com. Also the book itself, an initiation into ancient chemistry through the degrees of the Egyptian pyramids. This is literally the encapsulation of my life's work, and I am so unbelievably proud of this little book. Um, so if you want to help support the channel, thelandofchem.com, and uh, also my YouTube channel. I never promote that enough. So YouTube, go find my YouTube channel. I have exclusive videos from all of my research expeditions, all the videos from the Osiris shaft, Abu Sir, Abu Ghraib, showing those bowls in their original location. All those videos are going to be dropping on my YouTube channel soon, as soon as possible. And of course, Land of Chem on IG at the land of Kim. Damn. Every time you're, you're a banger. Every time you have to know this. Appreciate I, it, man. I love this, man. Uh, yes. So guys, all the ways to find him, of course, located down in the show notes, go support. You have a phenomenal YouTube. I'm obsessed with your work and I, I'm just Thank so you. grateful, um, you know, that you come back on and give us updates and all of that. Uh, we just feel extremely honored man, to honestly be on the front lines of this information with you. So thank you again for what you're doing. You're just such a fucking badass, dude. And then I'll it's get you on. It's my pleasure. I'll get you on. And, for and some I wanted to say too, thank you so much because I owe a debt of gratitude to you for being one of the first platforms that I went on. And it was literally because of your generosity and your connections that I've been able to do some of the other podcasts that I've been on. So dude, just thank you so much. It means more to me than I can possibly even describe that you were so enthusiastic and positive and encouraging about my research from the start. Um, and I just really, really appreciate it. And it's good to talk to you, man. And I know we've been, had a, a friendship developing in the background, but it's good to it's good to come on and talk in public every once in a while. Yeah, well, and thank you for the kind words, brother. You just see folks like you, and you we've got to get you out. I mean, this was because you you reached out. Uh, just I guess for everybody listening here, you reached out after the Larry Paul conversation, and that's how we connected. And I was just like, oh my god, this oh yeah, yeah, amazing. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, because you knew Larry, you know Larry, yeah. And um, it's just so cool, dude. I absolutely love this, and so we're so grateful, um, you know, to be here with you with on on this as well. And and again, thank you for your kind words, brother. But it's all you. You did the work. I just gave you the voice, so or amplified. I your appreciate voice. that, and it's it's very cool to see like you know larry is a fairly quote unquote legitimate researcher you know he's not speculating about any sort of alternative functions and things like that but it's been very cool to see my work get picked up by people that are actually in the field of quote unquote legitimate archaeology and like even my guide um, professor mohammed this guy is a career egyptologist and professor of archaeology but he's asking me questions about my knowledge of physics and geology and chemistry as related to the function of the Egyptian pyramids. And he's like, he loves my ideas. So it's so cool to just, 
even be incorporated in the discussion about ancient Egypt. And then to be able to come back from this recent research expedition with some fairly legitimate findings. I mean, it's not even about the function of the pyramids. It's like legitimate stuff like that inlet shaft, the uh, iron oxide deposits. These are stuff that nobody else is talking about. And I just feel so fortunate to have the opportunity to do this because if you only knew where I came from 10 years ago, um, it's been quite a work in progress. Man, well, we'll we'll get into some more of your life and and the woo woo and the masonry and stuff next time because that's another thing. Like you're you're fascinating. Like your work is incredibly fascinating. But like there's a whole different side to you. And this, yes, you and I are definitely friends. We've developed quite a great friendship here, and so I can't wait to share that side of you as well. But dude, your your work is phenomenal. You're at the front lines of this thing, and so yes, you need to get used to you being a leader in Egyptology. And so I'm grateful that you're you're wearing that as a badge of honor. And dude, um, like I said, just can't thank you enough, Jeff. Uh, we're gonna cut it here, but dude, fucking amazing, dude. Every time you blow my mind. So guys, check the show notes for sure for all the ways to find him, Jeff Drum. Thanks again, brother. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Jeff Drum, ladies and gentlemen, absolutely cool dude. We have so much more to talk about. We didn't even get to the Mason stuff, which I apologize about. Uh, I had a lunch thing with the mother-in-law, so there was a time commitment on this thing, but I could have just talked to him forever, and I told him that. I was like, next time, dude, we need to schedule like three hours for us to do this. But anyway, check the uh, show notes for all the ways to find Jeff. Uh, his amazing books, his really dope-ass YouTube channel, and looking forward to much more. But thanks again, Jeff. You are a badass, brother. Now, uh, while you're down there in the link description down there checking out all of that stuff, check out as well our resource links. You've got Food Forest Abundance. You've got Opus, the Organization for Paranormal Understanding and Support. Uh, if you'd like to start your own podcast, we partnered with Red Circle. We absolutely adore them. So the link's down there called uh, Start Your Own Podcast. That's right. And then uh, also, if you really want to step your game up overall, and this is not for the faint of heart, The Manifestor's Guide. Check that down there. He's got a scholarship offer for just you, listener of this show. Also, at checkout, type Expanding Reality, all caps, no spaces. Get a sweeter deal on top that and it's just badass like i said very big level up with that if you dare i'll, I'll put it that way because it's it's intense anyway uh check these show notes also guys for the uh, expanding reality podcast.com that's where all the links to all the socials merchandise we're doing a lot of cool shit with the merch coming up so stay tuned for that but um that's where you can find it uh for now and actually go on there and find anything that you like because it's it's all changing, so if there's something up there that you dig, uh, snatch it up for a snatch it out your life. Uh, and so anyway, all the links are there. Also, while you're over there, uh, sign up to become an Expansive Insider. We have tons of bonus stuff going on over there, all the cool panel shows. We're doing crazy cool shit. It's all over there, uh, so definitely check that out. While you're doing all of that, this is a value-for-value value system. So if you would like to support the mission and not become a member, there's absolutely a way to do that. We facilitate all of these things for y'all. And uh, just as little or as much as you can, and all of it's greatly appreciated, guys. Truly, truly, truly. All right, uh, go out into this incredibly mysterious place, uh, whatever the hell this thing is, guys, and pick up a piece of litter, buy somebody around in line, a coffee, a meal, something like that, something super small to you, makes a huge difference in the collective, trust me. While you're out there making changes in the collective, go ahead and get the fuck out of the left-hand lane. You got somebody behind you wanting to pass. And of course, as always, guys, go out into this beautifully mysterious place, whatever the fuck this thing is, and y'all just be good to one another. Thank you so much for listening, for watching, for engaging, just being the coolest sons of bitches ever. We'll see you next time.